there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the ability to stand here, to sit here, to be here in this room together this morning in order to worship um, your son, Jesus. Uh, Father, I pray that, uh, that our lives would be changed, drastically changed, because of a relationship, a real relationship we have um, with our risen Lord. Father, I pray that uh, this morning you wouldn't let anyone leave this place without having had not only an encounter with you through your spirit, but also an encounter with your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin by showing you in a moment a list of different actors, and I'm going to just ask you one question, and, if, and this is going to be a little interactive, and so if you want to shout something out, you can. So my question is this, it is, what do these 10 actors have in common? And it's not going to be easy to figure out. It's not Kevin Bacon, by the way. Um, but it's, what do these 10 actors have in common? Let's look at the screen really quickly. So this is Shia LaBeouf. Some of you guys know him. He was in Transformers and Indiana Jones, all right? Here's the next one, Corey Feldman. Anybody remember him? You may have to be in your 40s to remember this guy. Thank you. I see some of the elder statesmen of Seven Hills Fellowship nodding, which means we're in our 40s. Uh, three, Whoopi Goldberg. Some of you guys know her from The View, but some of you knew her from Sister Act, right? The, or The Color Purple, which she was actually fantastic in. This next slide is an actress that somebody is a little bit more for the younger crowd. This is Miley Cyrus, a.k.a. Hannah Montana. Thank you very much. Uh, then next, we have this fellow, Mike Myers. Um, he actually put out lots of pretty wonderful movies, also probably in the early, mid-90s. But now most of you know him as the voice of Shrek. Uh, next, we have Orlando Bloom, right? Some of you guys know him as Legolas. Unfortunately, that's probably the last thing you know him as. Lord of the Rings trilogy, thank you. And then we've got Cuba Gooding Jr., who made a series of children's uh, kids' films and all of a sudden dropped off the radar. Uh, next, Goldie Hawn, right? Some of you know her from maybe the 80s. Next, Steven Seagal. Somebody told me this morning that their father-in-law looks like Steven Seagal. I'll keep that nameless. And then finally, I put Gary Shandling up here because I was watching a show called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, and Gary Shandling, who's now passed away actually in the last year, but he was talking to Jerry Seinfeld, and they were talking about sort of aging as comedians and aging as actors, and Gary Shandling said, yeah, I walked into this restaurant the other day, and uh, you know, I was talking to the maitre d' at the restaurant, and the guy just right out in front said, I thought you were dead. And Gary Shandling said, like, okay, that's when it hit me. Like, I'm kind of irrelevant now. Anyway, okay, so here's the question. 
and you maybe you're getting it, but what are the, what do those ten actors have in common? That's exactly right. Awesome. I'm not exactly sure who that was that said that, but that was exactly right. Julie, awesome. Thank you, Julie. Julie Chambers. Anyway, that's right. In fact, the incredibly reputable website Ranker.com, which I'm sure most of you spend quite a bit of time on, uh, created this list of the most irrelevant actors and actresses. These are people that are irrelevant. They don't matter anymore, right? They're just irrelevant. And it's just sort of sad. Every now and then they pop up on some of these magazines that you pass by in Kroger because of something they do to try to grasp notoriety, but mostly they're irrelevant, right? The reason I'm mentioning and beginning with this today is because there are many people in this room, there are many people in Rome, there are many people in the United States of America who feel similarly, if not about Jesus, at least about certain parts of Jesus' life and ministry, particularly the resurrection. They might say it's not that big of a deal, right? That's not really what mattered or matters. In fact, there's an article named for, called Forget the Church, Follow Jesus, written by a man named Andrew Sullivan. It was in Newsweek, and he was the former editor of the New Republic. And here's what he has to say in this article about forgetting the church and following Jesus. He uses Thomas Jefferson to sort of make a point that what's really important wasn't Jesus' resurrection or the miracles, but really his teachings. And here's what he says. Thomas Jefferson believed that stripped of the doctrines of the incarnation, that is uh, God becoming a human being in Jesus, the resurrection, what we're celebrating today, the various miracles, the message of Jesus was the deepest miracle, and that it was radically simple. It was explained in stories, parables, and metaphors, not theological doctrines of immense complexity. It was proven by his willingness to submit himself to an unjustified execution. The cross itself was not the point, nor was the intense physical suffering he endured. The point was how he conducted himself through it all, calm, loving, accepting, radically surrendering even the basic control of his own body and telling us that this was what it means to truly transcend our world and be with God. Jesus, like Francis, that is Francis of Assisi, was a homeless person, as were his closest followers. He possessed nothing and thereby everything. Now, here's what Andrew Sullivan is saying. What he's basically saying is, he's, or he's asking questions, he's saying, does the resurrection really matter? And his answer is no. The resurrection really doesn't matter that much. And a secondary question is, in this article, is did the resurrection really even occur? And again, his answer to that is no. But what he's saying is that's irrelevant, right? That's not what matters. What's important is the message of Jesus. Somehow like Gandhi or somehow like Martin Luther King, the resurrection isn't what matters. What matters is the message. Now, let me, let me go ahead and say this right now. I think it does matter right? I think, it, I think it makes all the difference in the world, right? So, so for those of us in this room <clears throat> who've lost a friend, a husband, right? A wife, a brother, a sister, a child, the resurrection makes all the difference in the world. It matters. It is infinitely relevant. It was relevant to the disciples, right? You may not know this, but 11 of the 12 disciples died as martyrs. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to die for something that I know isn't true. I'm just not. I'm not going to die for something that I know didn't happen or even think didn't happen. And yet something happened to cause 11 of the 12 disciples to give their lives as martyrs. Let's take a look at one of these martyrs, one of these disciples. We're going to start off by looking at a guy who maybe some of you are familiar with. His name is Thomas. 
Now, for those of you who don't really know much about Thomas, I'll give you a quick bio. So one, right, he's known as Doubting Thomas. That's right, Timothy. And uh, he's known as Doubting Thomas is because wherever he pops up in Scripture, he's kind of always the Eeyore character. You know what I mean? Like, he's always the one that's pointing out the downside, right? Well, yeah, this could happen, right? Well, maybe this, maybe that. And so he's sort of Doubting Thomas, right? So if he was a Winnie the Pooh character, he'd be Eeyore. Not only that, he was a twin, right? We know that. That's what the word Didymus means in Greek. And so, you know, we don't know. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us. But it may be that his brother, the other twin, was the athletic one. Maybe he was the good-looking one. Maybe he was the smart one. Maybe he was the artist. Maybe he was the popular one. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Maybe his parents liked his brother better. But for some reason, Thomas was honestly kind of a curmudgeon and kind of a grump. He just was, right? And Jesus chose him to be one of his disciples. And that's good news for us in this room this morning. Let's read three stories about Thomas that I think will give us um, a really clear picture of the relevance of the uh, resurrection. Let's begin in John chapter 11. So in John chapter 11, at this point in Jesus' ministry, um, the Pharisees are trying to kill him, right? They're tired of him messing up um, what they've got going on. Um, They're angered by some of his claims. Uh, They feel um, like he's taken away their power and their authority. They think he's ruining everything, and so they are plotting to kill him, right? Well, there's this scene, which we're going to read about in a minute, where Jesus finds out that his good friend Lazarus has died, and Jesus decides to leave Galilee to go back to Judea in order to visit the sisters and to weep at the side of his friend's grave. Let's look at verse 11, beginning in John chapter 11, verse 3. So the sisters, um, that is Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister La- and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I love the, the Greek there. It says he loved them all. And so he stayed three more or two more days, right? Verse seven. And then he said to his disciples, now let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, your sake, I am glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, okay, Thomas appears in the story. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, right? Doesn't that sound like Eeyore a little bit? Well, let's go with him. We're going to die too. And what we see in this passage, I'm going to say two things, and there's a lot of things, but two things in particular about Thomas. And the first is this, you can say what you want about Thomas, he was loyal, right? He was going to stick with Jesus, even if it meant that he might have to die with him. And so thank goodness for that. The other thing we see about Thomas in this passage is that he is an unbeliever, right? He's been walking with Jesus now for three years, 
but he still doesn't believe. That's why it said in verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, right? So he was loyal, but he was also an unbeliever. John 11. Let's look at John 14. Again, we're studying this man, Thomas. John 14 is this famous passage where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Look at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, right? So all of you disciples, you believe in God, but you still don't believe in me. Believe also in me, right? My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way, right? Who invited this guy? You know what I mean? Like, who invited this guy? Thomas may be thinking about Jesus' physical home in Nazareth. He may be thinking about some other place. We don't actually know, but what we know is that he's thinking on this physical plane, and Jesus, of course, is thinking on a spiritual plane. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? The only way to the Father is through me. Now, let me just pause for a second here and ask a question. I, I just think it'd be great to have been a fly on the wall and, uh, and to see how Jesus said that and to see how Jesus interacted with Thomas. One, did Jesus say that with a smile, right? When Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, did Jesus smile a little bit? Was he impatient? Did, uh, did he understand and appreciate Thomas's honesty, right? I like to think that Jesus did appreciate Thomas's honesty. It's kind of like when our kids ask us questions. They don't pretend to understand. Like they don't pretend that they've got it when they really don't. They just ask the question. It's hard to know. But again, I like to think that Jesus appreciated Thomas's honesty here. And so like in John chapter 11, the issue here again is belief. Apparently, Thomas believed in God and presume, presumed that Jesus was something, maybe a prophet, maybe a rabbi, maybe that Jesus was even the Messiah. Right? Thomas, however, did not believe that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. Right? So Thomas believed some things, but he did not yet believe that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. At this point, it's not doubting Thomas. It's actually unbelieving Thomas. Right? He doesn't believe at all. Right? He doesn't know what's happening. John 11, right? John 14. Now let's look at John 20. This is after Jesus has died and risen again and appeared to some people. Here's uh, a little story that, again, involves Thomas. Again, belief is the issue here. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, that is the first time. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers, finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, right? Thomas, keeping it real right? Unbelieving Thomas. Not doubting Thomas, unbelieving Thomas. Here in verse 24 and 25, the disciples are recounting to Thomas the story of Jesus' appearance to them in that very room. And what's insinuated in John 11 and 14, Thomas just states unequivocally here, I do not, I will not believe unless, verse 26. A week later, full week has gone by, Thomas is in full disbelief, not doubt, but disbelief mode. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. I have a good friend who has this painting. I can't really see it because it's kind of too bright in here, but this is a painting by Caravaggio, and it's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. He's, he's, now he's doubting, right? But he's about to believe, and I, you can't really see it in the picture, but what Jesus is doing in this Caravaggio painting is Jesus has his hand on Thomas's wrist, and he's, he's pulling his hand into his side, right? He's saying, I want you to experience this, right? I want you to, to, to feel my wounded flesh, right? And I'm going to have to make you see. I'm going to have to make you feel. I'm going to have to make you believe. Verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, right? This is not a high school girl when she sees a famous musician, you know. This is the declaration of maybe the most serious of all of the apostles making a declaration, a proclamation that he absolutely believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is his Lord and that he is his God. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas now understands and believes that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Thomas has changed, radically changed, right? Doubting Thomas, unbelieving Thomas, Eeyore Thomas, right? We see that in all these passages, this trajectory of Thomas moving to a point of belief. Now, really the story of Thomas mostly ends there. We have a, a little mention of Thomas in Acts chapter 1, where we're told that he and the other disciples have gathered for prayer. And afterwards, in the book of Acts and some other places, we hear about Peter, we hear about James, we hear about John, right? Paul comes on the scene, but we don't hear anything about Thomas in the rest of Scripture. What happened, right? Did his belief stick? Did it take? Well, here's the answer to the question, I think. A number of 3rd and 4th century Roman writers mentioned Thomas, Ambrose of Milan, Gregory of Nazianus, Jerome and Ephraim the Syrian, and Eusebius of Caesarea. These are all historians from that time period. Eusebius records a story that his teacher, Pantheus, visited a Christian community in India in the 2nd century, which had been established by none other than doubting Thomas, right? Church history records that Thomas died a martyr when he offended the elders of the city, which is now known as Chennai, India, in 72 AD, 3,126 miles away from Jerusalem, right? So let me ask you a question. Did the resurrection matter to Thomas? Was it relevant to him? Absolutely. It, it, it made all the difference in the world to him. It made all the difference in the world to the other 10 disciples who also died as martyrs. If you remember, there were two questions earlier uh, that, was, that were posted by Mr. Sullivan. And one of the questions was, did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? And secondly, it was, does it really matter? What do you think Thomas would say? Did it happen? Why do you think I went to India, right? 
It makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he taught and everything he did makes all the difference in the world. It's utterly relevant. It makes all the difference in the world. Let me call time out and let me ask the question, so what? So what does that mean for each of us in this room this morning? Because we're all in different places. Let me say this. Number one is that God isn't put off by your skepticism, right? He's not afraid of your skepticism. I don't even think he's offended by your skepticism. Remember that Jesus invited a skeptic to be one of his disciples and drew him to himself. There's a man named Alistair McGrath um, who is now a famous theologian, but also a scientist and and apologist. He studied at Oxford, and uh, he tells a story of basically his own uh, conversion, how he came to believe in Jesus and believe in God. And this was really when he was a young adult. And so I'm going to read this little um, uh, excerpt from his book. He says this, as a young man, I was grumpy and frankly rather, uh, a grumpy and and frankly rather arrogant atheist. I was totally convinced there was no God and that anyone who thought there was needed to be locked up for her own good. I was majoring in the sciences at high school and had won a scholarship to study chemistry at Oxford University beginning in October of 1971. I had every reason to believe that studying the sciences further would confirm my rampant godlessness. While waiting to go up to Oxford, I decided to work my way through a pile of improving books. Needless to say, none of them was religious. Eventually, I came to a classic work of philosophy, Plato's Republic. I couldn't make sense of everything I read, but one image etched itself into my imagination. Plato asks us to imagine a group of men trapped in a cave, knowing only a world of flickering shadows cast by fire. Having experienced no other world, they assume that the shadows are the only reality. Yet the reader knows and is meant to know that there is another world beyond the cave awaiting discovery. As I read this passage, the hard-nosed rationalist within me smiled condescendingly. Typical escapist superstition. What you see is what you get, and that's the end of the matter. Yet, a still small voice within me whispered words of doubt. What if this world is only part of the story? What if this world is only a shadow land? What if there is something more wonderful beyond it? Many of us in this room, many of you in this room have been or are skeptics, and you need to know that your skepticism is no more of a barrier to God than your sin is. Neither is a barrier. Not only did Jesus die and rise for Thomas, he called him to be a disciple from the very beginning, and then at the very end, Jesus appeared to Thomas in order that he might believe, right? My prayer for some of you in this room this morning who are skeptics would be for you to know that your skepticism doesn't scare God away. In fact, he wants to draw you to himself, and I will pray that he reveals himself to you. Your skepticism cannot scare scare him away. And in light of that, I would encourage you to point number two, which is to investigate Jesus, right? There's good reason to believe in the existence of of a risen Lord. There's good reason to believe that something happened 2,000 years ago. Six out of the seven um, messianic sort of groups that popped up in the first century of Christianity, of the six of this, all seven of the leaders were killed, right? 
Six of them just sort of fizzled out, and only one remained, and within 100 years it had become the most powerful force in the Roman Empire. Something happened 2,000 years ago. Here's what Tim Keller says in The Reason for God. He says this, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. All right, let me say that one more time. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Investigate Jesus, right? Your skepticism doesn't scare him off. Investigate Jesus. And for those of us in this room who do believe, right, sometimes stronger than others, the last thing I would tell you this morning is to embrace hope, right? Remember that you have a hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul is addressing this very thing with some people that are concerned and worried. And he says this, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Right? Just think for a moment of all those people that you know sleep in death, right? So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. You absolutely grieve, but you don't grieve like those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus... those who have fallen asleep in him. Is Easter relevant, right? Does it matter? It makes all the difference in the world, in this world, and in the next. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? Ask Thomas, or better yet, maybe ask Jesus. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this day where we can gather together and we can be uh, reminded of the work that you have done in, in history, in time, in space, in the lives of real human beings. And Father, I ask that you would again work um, in the lives of real human beings this morning, in time, in space, in this room. Father, I ask that you would introduce yourself uh, to people who are far away from you, to people who are skeptics. Father, I pray that in time and in space and in this room, um, that in some way through your spirit, um, you would even touch those who trust in you but do doubt uh, and who do struggle to believe, Father. And I pray that you would remind us uh, that we have hope, not in ourselves, but in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.